Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning. Let's go to Ephesians 5. Hey, I got a good morning. That's pretty good. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21 is where we'll be at today. Uh, we are at the week of Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I uh, hope you enjoy the time together, probably with family or friends or just good food and football. Um, of all the people we have most to be thankful for. Not only the content of our Thanksgiving, but we also know the right person to thank for those things. So I'd encourage you, even as we uh, come to this wonderful season, enjoying, I'm, I'm glad to have the time set aside to thank the Lord for this. We, of all people, have the right opportunity, and we understand who we're thanking and to thank Him for. I'm thankful for Him giving us, as course, even prayed, His Word. We have a light for our feet, a lamp for our, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We have the truth of God's word that helps us to understand. Otherwise, I wouldn't have much that was very, very helpful this morning to come up and tell you. But praise God, we have his word that continually shows us the truth. Thankful for his Holy Spirit who indwells his people, continually leads us on and makes us sanctified, makes us more holy. Praise God for that work. I just want to stop also this to remind us um, and just want to be thankful for you, for us together. Uh, God's, God's kingdom and his people spread across the whole globe this morning and have throughout the ages. But at this time, we get to experience the truth, a real expression of, the, of Jesus Christ's church here around us. And I'm thankful to God for the work that he's done in each of you, both in saving you and then also sanctifying you to be more like Christ. This is good news and we're thankful for it. We are the recipients of a vast number of blessings, um, but before I get to any of those, I also want to remember, even as there's a, there's a camera on the back wall, that not everyone is here as well. I, we look at you at home, I'm looking right at you to let you know that we love you as well and miss you. Look forward to the day when we will all be able to join together. But for that time, until then, we pray for you, we love you, and we, we, we look forward to the day when you'll come back to be with us and able to in the midst of what's going on. Um, this morning, we remember, um, just before we get into the text, that we are to be thankful, but even Ephesians, the book itself, has given us fodder to be thankful for. In, the, in verse uh, eight of or 7 of chapter 1, he says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is your God. This is who we come to worship this morning together. This is not an empty ritual. I hope you know that. We don't get any brownie points for just fulfilling a number of these services. We join together to encourage one another in the truth of the Scriptures, to be fed from God's Word, and by God's grace, encourage one another in the way that He has set it up to make it. We didn't make the church. Jesus did, and He continues to build that. So we're thankful for this today. This is our God. By His grace, let us come then and worship Him through the Word today with joy and sincerity. All right, Ephesians 5, 15. I'm going to read 15 through 21. Start in 15 and then we'll pray. Ephesians 5, 15. This is God's word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, together we join to praise you and to be fed from your holy word. Thank you for your love and care, for your grace in each and every part of our lives. Lord, we know that our lives are not meaningless, but sometimes we're so burdened with uh, sin, the weight of our decisions, the busyness of our schedules and work, the difficulty of trying to really maintain the unity of the Spirit. But God, we feel like sometimes what we're doing is just one philosophy of living and It would just be easier to give it up and live like the rest of the world. God, would you help us this morning? Would you shine through our cloudy, unbelieving vision? Give us faith. Please, Lord, give us faith this morning. Teach us to trust you and to look to the cross for true understanding. Reminding us, Lord, that we could never, ever, ever be righteous enough to enter your gates but Jesus' sacrifice, by his blood, we were healed. Please give us and, and me this morning as I open the word power to share your word with your people so that we can be built up in love. We come to you with humble hearts, ready to receive our daily bread. Thank you, Lord, for growing us and for one day glorifying us in you, for we know that you will do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Paul brings us here in chapter 5, verse 15, to the final exhortation about walking. He's been using this language all along, if you remember, all the way from the beginning of the turning point in the book. First three chapters are all who we are, explains what's going on behind the veil. Second three chapters, four through six, is all the practical nature of what it means now to be who we are. Right from the beginning of chapter four, he started talking about walking. If you look there, you can say, I'm just going to kind of go through a few of these that he's mentioned, walk. In verse 1, he said, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In verse 17, if you look down, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In this section, he calls us to walk as those who are truly part of the family of God, as though we shouldn't treat each other the way that we always used to treat each other when we looked out for number one but rather realizing that we have been made part of the body of Christ. This is what he's speaking to. He tells us to speak truth to one another, not to be angry and sinful, not to be covetous, not to be stealing from each other, but rather building one another up in love, which kind of brings us all the way to the beginning of chapter 5. At the beginning of chapter 5, he says, if you remember, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, in verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then last week, there's another section of love here, or walking, excuse me. He says to us that we are to expose the unfruitful works of darkness around us. He calls us children of light. In verse 8, he said this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We saw that God uses this revealing agent of truth in his people, us, to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. He actually uses the work that he is doing in us to expose others to the gospel. 
We are lights to expose sin for what it is. And that exposure even leads to a transformation, conversion. It actually leads to those accepting Christ and becoming light. So now we get to verse 15. We've been talking about walking this whole time. But as we get to verse 15, he's almost going to kind of sum it all up. He writes this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. It's a summary statement. In other words, he says, look carefully how you walk. Each Christian ought to care about the way that they are living. It matters. What you're doing day in and day out matters. I've been telling you this over and over again, Paul says. I've been preaching to you, walk this way, walk this way. And if you haven't gotten all that, let me just sum it up by saying, look carefully how you're walking. You have to be concerned about this. Watch your walk. Examine the way that you're living. For instance, just claiming to be a Christian and just claiming that you believe in God is not enough. He shows us that this is true. A real Christian is one who walks like Jesus did. Paul is asking Christians to seriously consider our conduct. So I'd ask you, how often do you do this? You consider how you are living. Like the things that you did this morning, if you did them well, if you did them according to the scriptures, if you walked in love, if yesterday, last week, did you walk in light? Week before, did you walk as a Gentile or did you walk as one who has been saved to Jesus Christ? Did you walk this last month according to the calling that you've been called to? Guys, we've been working on this for the past couple weeks and months, actually, through this section. Paul's just kind of saying, hey, if you haven't paid attention until now, let me just bring it back together. You need to be concerned about the way that you are living. It's important. Does your life look like the other pagans or does it look like Christ? This is really a call for true reflection about how, the way, how we decide to do things, how we live in our world, how we work, how we raise our children, how we live under authority of our government, all these different things. There is calling us to reflect to see if we are living rightly. Now, admittedly, what's the standard? What's the thing that we're trying to live up to? What kind of walking are we doing? We know this is true. We kind of think this is not true, but we know that we aren't the standard. We aren't the Christian standard. We don't get to make the rules about what it means to walk rightly. Instead, we know that the truth has been revealed to us. We know that your thoughts and my thoughts on Christian living should, you know, what they look like are a good thing, but that's not really the most important thing. He is calling us to walk in wisdom. He's saying, if you say this, if you look at the whole verse, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. He's saying you're no longer ignorant fools that you once were. You've been enlightened. You've had wisdom delivered to you. You are essentially changed. And for you to live as a fool is foolish. That's not who you are. You know the truth. And so you are no longer to live like an unwise person doesn't know anything. You've had the light of Christ shine, and you know what is the truth. From the very beginning of chapter 1, he's talked about this idea of wisdom. Paul told us that God has revealed himself to us in wisdom. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he, he tells us that he, as he prays for the saints, he says this, he prays that God, the Father of glory, would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. In chapter 3, we saw Paul showing the gospel that it, it reveals to the authorities and the powers in the heavenlies the multifaceted wisdom of God. That by the very composition of the church, the fact that Jews and Gentiles are now together in Jesus Christ, 
It is declaring the wisdom of God. The light has shone. We are seeing for the first time, if you remember back in chapter 3, the the authorities and the rulers are amazed at this. It's almost as though they're looking into the small theater called the world and they're astounded what God has done, joining Jew and Gentile as one person in Jesus Christ. This is the wisdom of God. He's calling us to act as people who are wise, that we understand what's actually going on. He talks about this, in, if you remember, in chapter 4, verse 17 through 18. He talks about the opposite, what we, was, what we used to be. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He's describing unwise walking. He's talking about those that don't know any better. But he says, you've now been enlightened. You are wise. You've been brought near. He even goes as far as to say, you have been taught Christ. You have been educated. You know better. This is the truth. More than that, we also know that we've actually been changed. Their identity has changed in Jesus Christ. Verse 15 then, he says these things together, right? He goes on to explain what he means there to walk as wise. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, wise ones do not just go with the flow. What what he's saying here is it's not a bunch of groupthink over the whole world. Whatever everyone else is doing, don't do that. You know better than that. You've seen the truth. Our text rightly says here, then, that we should be seeing it as people who are wise. He says that wise people redeem or buy back, or as your text says there, it says, make the best use of your time. The word is a little bit more complex here. It's actually talking about taking that which is not good or not yours and buying it back for what is right and good. And why? Because he says, because the days are evil. The idea he's getting here is, is, is right. When, when the ESV says, making the best use of time, that's totally fine. It's a good translation. But the problem I'm just going to warn us about is that we're tempted to think that means that we should be diligent people. We should be really efficient with our time and productive. Be productive, hardworking citizens that are making the best use of their time. And that's certainly a good thing. We ought to do that. We obviously want to do well with our time. He's not talking about being productive. There's a lot of people who hate God, who are very productive, who are very good with their time, who are very diligent. That's not his point here. His point is much larger for us to understand. We're talking about in the grand scheme of things. We're not just talking about our time that we have until our life ticks away here and making sure we get a lot of stuff on our to-do list done. That's not what he's talking about. He is trying to tell us that it's bigger than that and that we should be concerned about a different dimension. That's just really the one-dimensional thinking if we're only concerned with getting the things done in our house and in our communities that are get off the checklist. It's a good thing, but again, lots of people here on earth can do that. Paul isn't only telling us to be diligent. He's saying that wise people take their work and their living seriously as though they are doing something to push back against the darkness that is true, this, this current evil age. This is a kind of loving or shining or worthy, holy living that actually does something about the age that we live in. The believer understands that what they are called to is love God with their heart, soul, and mind, and to love their neighbor as themselves. This is very different than, than we talk about buying back time, because our goal is much different. 
we're trying by God's grace to push back the darkness and proclaim Jesus Christ to one another and to the world. The believer understands that Christ has not yet consummated the kingdom and that this age, we are actually agents of salt and light. Jesus calls us that. We have hope. We have reconciliation. Our message is for those who are darkened hearts so that they might come alive, that they might also be light. So we actually have something to do as we are here. We're not just biding our time. I think we unfortunately think about that idea of being a pilgrim in this place, not of this world, as though sometime I'm just like passing through, eventually I'll get to heaven, and then everything gets good. No, he is calling us to redeem the time because the age is evil. This is what we were placed here to do by God's grace, and through us, he is working to redeem this time. Because we are wise to the truth, we use whatever time, resources, money, talents that we've been given to push back against the darkness, to be of service both to our God and to others. That's what we're called to do here. This isn't, again, just about being more efficient. It's really about showing forth the manifest wisdom of God and the glory of God, both to the angels, demons, and to those around us in this earth. Now, so Paul's gotten his 15 and 16 out of his system. He had to kind of cap that off and give us a finishing there. But what now that we understand, we, we all agree with him. We understand what he's saying. We're supposed to walk wisely. We should definitely do our best to like redeem the time because the days are evil. We all get that. But now he's going to use that agreed upon statement for us to go into the next section as a foundation for the, what he's going to teach next. Look at this. He says in verse 15 and 16, look carefully then how you must walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Then the next thing that he says in verse 17 is therefore, He's going to give us two main teachings out of this. One here in verse 17, and then the next one is going to follow in verse 18. He's saying first, because of what I just said, that we are supposed to walk wisely, because of this, you should not become foolish, but instead, you should understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, obviously, in verse 17, we get the first half of the command. We, we, we think, at least we think we get it. I think we understand what, it's, what he's saying there. We shouldn't become foolish understand. I don't want to be a fool. But Paul shows us the counteraction, and by it, he explains what he means by being a fool. That we ought to not only not be foolish, but we ought to understand the will of the Lord. Now, again, it's tempting for us to think about this idea of knowing the will of the Lord as though we're divining some pagan idea, like where we're supposed to go, where am I supposed to be, where's my destiny? Like, I need to know, like, I, I want to find out the will of the Lord. What's going to happen in two or three years? Which is the right path to take? Am I supposed to marry this person? Am I supposed to go to this school? Am I supposed to have this career? Like, what if I get it wrong? Is that what he's talking about here? I, I would just push back on this for a moment because I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. He has told us in the book of Ephesians what he means by the will of God or the will of the Lord. It's not this idea that we secretly hope that he can give us the hidden pathways that no one else knows. No, he is actually telling us that you need to understand, that you need to seek after the will of the Lord. And he's told us what that is. Think about 1-1, right at the beginning of this, of this chapter of the, uh, of the book. He says, it is by the will of God that Paul was called to be an apostle. Uh, I, I've been called to be an apostle, not sure about that, but like you see that this setting apart for the sake of the gospel being preached to these people, God has shown this is by the will of God. 
Verse, one, verse 5 of chapter 1, it was according to the purpose of his will that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 9 says this, we find out that it was revealed the mystery of his will that showed us to be part of the grand design of God to unite all things in Christ Jesus. And then if you look at verse 11 of chapter 1, so chapter 1 is full of the will of God. He says this, he says, God is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. In chapter 6, verse 6, so now we're actually going past where we've been. We haven't, we haven't been here yet, but I think it's so relevant and helpful for us. I want you to catch this. Chapter 6, verse 6 talks about this, that we are doing the will of God when we obey from the heart our earthly masters. In other words, those that would be in authority over you right now, maybe your boss, maybe some other situation, those people ought to be obeyed. And then when we obey from the heart, we are doing the will of God. This is important for us. It's going to help us understand what Paul is telling us to do here. What he is asking of us is to think and to live and to do according to the eternal purposes and plans and will and counsel of God. To live according to his design. So non-thinking, non-considering, non-wrestling Christians, really when they don't think about these things and don't understand or seek after this, they end up becoming foolish. In other words, he's telling us exactly how not to be foolish. Instead of becoming foolish by yourselves, he says, understand the will of God. And he's telling us here, he's already told us all throughout Ephesians what the will of God is, these deep things, understanding his plan from the beginning of time to show us Jesus Christ, to save us by his death, and now as we are transformed both by the renewing of our minds and the Spirit working in us, this is His will, that we would grow up in Christ. So like, just, just stay with me for a minute. Theological study and thinking about the character of God, His attributes, or considering the, the accomplishing of the redemption of our souls, all these things sound like seminary level things. No. All of us should be considering these things. All of us we should be considering how redemption happened. We should be reading and being thankful and then working out in our own understanding of Scripture what God is doing from before the foundations of the world. This is not just an exercise for me and the elders to do and then you guys, I'll just download it all for you. No, this is us together not becoming fools but understanding the will of the Lord. Paul's calling us to understand God. When Paul calls us to understand what the will of the Lord is, he is calling us to study, to wrestle, to think, to meditate on the truths that have been revealed to us about who he is and what he is doing in time and space. And that is what we understand through the scriptures. Uh, my wife and I enjoy playing games. We always have. Um, usually she trounces me pretty good. Um, she's smarter than I am. She's a little bit more competitive than I am. Um, and those things combined, I don't have much of a chance, but I win once in a while. But I can remember the first two or three times we played a game called Othello. It's also called Reversi. I don't know if you know that game. The first couple times we played, again, she just trounced me. Like within 10 minutes, it was inevitable. My defeat was coming very quickly. Like it was just like, oh man, this, I did not know how to play this game. This is terrible. And I remember after the third game that I asked her, I said, is it kind of important to see if you can get one of the corners quickly? Is that like a, a helpful strategy? And I can remember being like, oh, I don't know. You know, again, not a, not a great answer, but I wasn't sure, so I tried it. 
Well, on this fourth game we started to play, by 10 minutes in, my defeat was not so inevitable. I was doing better than I'd ever done before, and I actually had a chance against her. I think she still won. My point being here is that I actually could play according to my understanding of what was going on. My wife is very good at taking all those things, thinking about strategy, understanding experiences of others, applying it to the game and with the goal in mind to actually win the game the way it's supposed to be played, and she often wins. Now, I recognize that's kind of a silly analogy, and it's not one for one, but the same applies here. What we're trying to do is not be foolish, not be like I was the first three games, had no idea what I was doing, just trying to flip over white and black pieces that someday, hopefully, something good would happen that I'd win magically. No, but I had to understand what was going on so that I could play properly. The same is true here. We're not to become foolish and not think about these things, but rather to know and understand the will of God so that we can play the game properly. Now, you know, we know we're not playing a game here. Uh, so, uh, some of our kids, I know this, well, I've watched it happen at least once, some of our kids will watch YouTube videos of other kids playing video games and showing them how to win those games. I'm amazed by that. I'm like, you guys can play a game or you can watch a video about somebody else playing a game, but they're not crazy because sometimes they're actually learning how to play that game well. And in that, then they go back and they play the game better. Uh, I appreciate that. I still think it's silly, but I appreciate what they're trying to do. They're trying to play by understanding and learning how to do so from others. As we think about this, our whole life, we're not talking about a game. We're not even talking about 70 or 80 years that we live here. We're talking about eternity. You and I know the truth. And what we do now, by God's grace, has an effect on the rest of eternity. So we ought not to play like fools. We ought not to live like people who don't know the truth, that don't understand the goal or the strategy. We know. We understand exactly what God is doing because he's revealed it to us. He has shown us. We are, in that way alone, by God's grace alone, nothing of our own, we are enlightened. We know what it means to live. The difference is that we ought to play or live according to understanding. In this, then, we will have success if we will live according to his word. And I don't mean by that that everyone else around us will be like, man, this is your best life now. You're really living great. You're living large. No, we understand that that may not ever live, we may not live large here in this time period before we pass away, but we know in Christ that our riches are far exceeding those that we could ever have here. We understand that being and having Jesus Christ, being one in him, having him as our true treasure is not just enough, it's more than enough, and it's wonderful for eternity. In verse 18 then, he is going to give us the second therefore. Right, so uh, remember the next phrase is controlled by that therefore statement beginning of verse 17. So first he told us not to be foolish but to understand the will of the Lord. Now he gives the second word. He says, because of this, that what I just said, because of this you should not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Now verses 19, 20, and 21 are going to explain what that looks like. But track with me for a minute because we need to talk about verse 18 for a minute. We start out with this very interesting command that almost seems like it's out of place. He is going to use this, though, as a true foil for us to understand the next coming command. Now, what do I mean by true foil? Well, remember in verse 17 that he drew a contrast, helped us understand what it meant to go after understanding by first saying, don't become foolish. Paul does this a lot. Don't become foolish. Instead, understand what the will of the Lord is. Here in verse 18, the first command catches us off guard, almost like it's out of place, but it's not. 
He says, you should not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but rather you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at first it seems like, again, he's, he's saying something that doesn't belong here, but let us consider for a moment that wine or alcohol, when it is abused, really is an agent of foolishness or reckless living. It continually opens us up to reckless living or debauchery. It opens us to things that we would never normally do. That's why a lot of people say, let's do a pre-drinking party where we get ready to go so we can kind of open ourselves up and be ready to do this. There's other reasons for all that, but I'm just saying that we usually, alcohol flows so that people can feel better and loosen up and be able to interact at parties. It's true, it happens, but we know that people like start this way off, loosen up. It's also an agent for the numbing of the heart, the pain, the mind, all these different things. It's also one of these things, if we, when it's abused, that this makes a person a fool. It opens them up to all the things that they want to do inside, that they desire to do, not the things that God desires. It's really not just a sin in and of itself. If you think about this, it's a gateway or an influencer for us to do all kinds of different sin. It doesn't sow to the Spirit, not at all. It rather opens us up to do whatever we want to do. In other words, the works of the flesh. It's constantly getting back to what we want to do. That's why he, he, he tells us right here, because he's going to, again, put it against the Spirit. As we see this, though, we realize it's not just about don't get drunk with wine. It's like don't give yourself over to all kinds of the things that you want to do. Rather, we're going to see where we should go. Proverbs 23 talks about this, 29 through 35. It talks about the person who is drunk. It talks the person that is controlled by wine, this person that abuses it. It gives us a sad description of a person drunk with wine. They are numb to the pain. They are happy to live in this situation. They're numb to it. They have no sorrow. But in the end, it bites them like a venomous snake. In the end, it is their destruction. It causes them very great pain. And it makes them, Proverbs says, think and believe and even say strange things. In other words, untruths. This state, when we are controlled by this, produces all kinds of wickedness and living not according to the truth, but living, living according to what we want to do, what makes most sense to us. It is not an agent of light. It is not a revealer of what is good and right and true. The one who is drunk does not live in reality, but rather lives in their own reality, places themselves under the influence of something else. Being drunk with wine rejects the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit and puts us under a different influence, and potentially puts us at the helm of all that we do, or others, depending on what's going on. So Paul isn't just offering, though, a random command about alcohol. I mean, that'd be good in itself. But that's not all he's doing here. The command is good by itself, but Paul's main purpose in using this is helping us to understand the next statement correctly. Because it's going to kind of almost like work off of it. It's not a one-to-one -one that we might think of, but all of a sudden it starts to be a foil for us to compare against and understand his next statement. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is quite a statement that we are about to be told here, that we are to be filled with the Spirit. If you know what that means, it's a passive verb. It's not, go fill yourself with the Spirit. That's not what he says. He says, go be filled with the Spirit. Uh, meaning that we can't do it ourselves, but rather someone or something else has to do it to us. Let me, get a little, let me give a little bit of a clarification here. I think that most of us think that what Paul is talking about here is that we have somehow Holy Spirit poured into us. 
as though somehow we're being filled up with this substance that's kind of foggy and mysterious and we get more and more of this stuff inside of us and somehow magically we're holy. We, 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 I, just, I just think I sometimes think that when I read this first passage at, at first light. But don't think of the Holy Spirit as the content here. This is to misunderstand the passage. The Holy Spirit is actually the agent of the filling, the one that's doing the action of filling us up. Now, it all turns on the two little words here that we find in our text. The idea of what does filling mean, to be filled, and then what does it mean when he uses the word with? That sounds silly, but the truth is, this word that he is bringing out for us is actually one of four different choices in the Greek that he could be using for en. It could be in, it could be by, it could be with, or it could be to. So when we look, I'm trying to get Greeky on you here. I'm trying to explain why this is a little bit difficult, because we think of this the wrong way. So if it could be any of these different things, what makes the translators choose this one over another? There's, there's reasons for them to do that, and it's, it's okay. We know that we actually have the Spirit of God in us. We praise God for that truth. But is that what he is saying here? Again, if we don't know how this preposition is used, the best way for us to understand wisely is to look at the clues of the context, to understand the other words together and how they're used. So I'd ask us, what do we know to be true about this passage already? Well, I'll just point out one thing. To be filled or fullness, this idea, Paul's used it before already in the book of Ephesians. He's shown us what he means by being filled. So let me just read a few passages here to show you. In Ephesians 1, and 23, he says this, And he put all things under his feet and gave him, that's Jesus, remember, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, Jesus is the one who is the content of the filling. It's Jesus. And then Ephesians 3.19, Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This certainly could be the Father. I think it's actually larger than that. He's saying that you would be filled with God, maybe even the full scope of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that we would come to true maturity because of what God is doing in us. Paul prays for us to be filled with the fullness of God himself. And then Ephesians 4.10, he says this, He who descended, again, that's referring to Jesus, is the one who also ascended far above all things, I'm sorry, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. It's Paul, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's been the consistent pattern, or it's not the consistent pattern, I'll say this, that it's always the Spirit who's doing the filling. That's not what we see in him. Rather, we see over and over Jesus, and then also this idea of the fullness of God. This is why it seems best then to understand that this passage is referring to the Spirit as the one who is doing the influencing. Again, think about how he talked about wine, how we just talked about that. Certainly wine fills one's belly. But he's talking about how this wine influences someone and is debauchery. It's the opening up of the gate to all different types of sin. So over here, he says, be filled with the Spirit. But he's not saying with. I'm just going to help us understand. He's saying, be filled by the Holy Spirit. He is saying, this is the influencer that you want to be controlling your life. Not wine. Not the things that would help us sow to the flesh, but rather the things that are controlled by the Spirit of God. That He would be filling us. That He would be bringing us to maturity. That we would understand how to live according to the wisdom that is in 
God. And yes, it certainly is that the Holy Spirit indwells us. That's true, and we rejoice in that. But we have to see this parallel to understand that he's not just talking about some sort of Holy Spirit intoxication. That's, a, that's like an idea out there. that we, like, That's what we really want. We really want to be drunk on the Spirit, that this is the thing that we're really going after. I just want to warn you about this idea. It's not this magical filling up of mistiness that somehow produces automatic holiness that we didn't even try to do. Whoops, it just happened. No, that's, that's not even close to what Scripture talks about as we continue to pursue righteous living. If he had wanted to say, be drunk on the Spirit, he could have said that. He didn't. Instead, he purposefully uses this word to be filled with the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. So we would understand that we're not just getting drunk on some sort of experience that would wear off eventually, but rather continually be under the control of the one who influences us, who will help us sow to the Spirit. Now, I'm not a super smart person. I know I'm not clever or well thought, but when I come to these verses, the logic fails me in my own small thinking. What I mean by that is this. I can't do this. He, call, he commands this. It's an imperative. But I can't do this. He says, be filled. In other words, go do something that someone else has to do to you. <laughs> that, that's really, like, at first, it kind of like blows my mind. How does this happen, God? But it's a, it's a call for us to be filled with the Spirit. So how do you and I, then, have the Holy Spirit fill us? How do we like twist his arm to fill us and, and to, to work in us and to be more like Jesus Christ? How do we get filled with the fullness of God? This is the beauty of the gospel. This is nothing new, actually. It's the gospel that calls us to 100% rely on God and to 100% participate through faith in him. This is how we walk. No glory do we get. It's all His. It's all Him sanctifying us, making us holy, saving us. And yet He calls us to participation because it's a command. We are to be filled by the Holy Spirit. We're responsible to be filled, but we are completely at the mercy of the Holy Spirit Himself. In other words, we are reliant only on Him. Our posture is what He's calling us to that we would be ready to receive with humility, with faith, asking that God would fill us. In other words, what can we do but fall to him in faith, asking for him to do the things that only he can do? This is the life of repentance, guys. This is the life of faith that we desire to live. Really, um, if we 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 think this through, it's a call then for us to stop being self-reliant. A lot of us are good Americans and we want to do it ourselves and like, we can get this done. You can't get this done. It is the Holy Spirit alone who can empower you to be holy. It is only by his work. I don't know if you were all at Josh Lambert. He, he referenced this passage and I just think it's exactly right uh, here when he became a member. John 15, he said, not Josh, but Jesus said this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the posture of faith, of humility, asking God to be the vine that gives us fruit. Fruit doesn't happen by us taking fruit that we buy at home goods and putting it on a tree. 
That's not fruit. Fruit happens by that sap that comes from the vine filling the branches and creating fruit that is real. That's what we desire to do. That's what he calls us to do, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and grow the way that only he can make it happen. So then the following statements, verses 19 through 21, are all subordinate participial clauses. How about that? You can take that home. That's a good one. Um, the idea is just this. All these different things explain what it means or marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like. So if you look at verse 18, he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Then 19, here we go. He says four things. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here Paul gives us four marks of fruit-bearing Christians. First, we are to speak to one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Also, by the way, it assumes that we're actually gathering together. It's an important part of our body to do this. This is why we long for the day we can all be together again. We want to be able to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And singing, although some of us may not be very good at it, is commanded here by Paul. And these two marks actually are the same one, the first thing and the second thing. It's just from a different perspective. Notice that not only are we singing to one another, but look at the next command, singing and making melody to who in our heart? It's to the Lord. In this process, as we sit down to praise the Lord, in a few moments, we'll sing again. You praise the Lord with your whole heart, but you also, the amazing thing is that you sing to one another. You tell the truth about the gospel, and therefore you continue to build one another up. This is the kind of stuff that spirit-filled people do, that the Holy Spirit is working on us and making us more like Christ. This is what we do. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So congregational singing is not something to just be a passive participant about. Uh, if, I can just call you out, if I can call you out, I will. You need to sing. It is right. You need to sing to the Lord, and you need to sing for your brothers and sisters as well. It is right and good. It is God-ordained for us to do this. It's commanded for us to do this. So it's okay if you're not the greatest singer. That's all right. We praise God for his work even through broken vessels. But we praise him even more for how that builds up the body. This is a good and right thing for us to do. I won't belabor that anymore. Next, he shows that a Christian who is being filled by the Holy Spirit is one who gives thanks to God. Verse 20 says this, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to pray. He calls us to not just thanksgiving in front of everybody else around a table. Like, that's a good time. That's good. He says, go to God and thank him for all that he has done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing to attach that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because if there's any reason we should be thankful for blessings, it's what he already talked about at the beginning of Ephesians. Every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ Jesus. This is our hope and the, the center point of our thanksgiving as a fountain continually out of our own hearts and minds and hopefully lips as well of praise and thanksgiving to God for working on our behalf. Lastly, he shows us that someone who is being filled by God's Holy Spirit is a person who submits to the God-given authorities in our lives. Verse 21 says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A disciple of Christ 
someone who is truly walking in Christian maturity, someone who is being filled by the Holy Spirit, understands that it is God who has set up authorities, who has set up genders, who has set up all the different roles and different structures throughout all of creation. Demons and angels and scores of difference as all these different ideas showing us that there is submission throughout all of God's creation. And we're going to get to that a lot heavier when we come back next week. We're just about ready to go into this section on the household codes and to show what it means to submit to the authority that God has given to us. It is based, though, here in this idea that these things are God-given and it will be a mark of someone who is being filled by the Spirit, who is growing in Christian maturity, to be submissive, to understand their role in the whole. Next week, again, we'll return to this, but it's something that the Holy Spirit must do in us. And we desire that this would be fruit for us to live out the truth and being submitting to one another. So, this is our call today. There are three major commands, but there's so much here for us to consider. Number one, to look carefully at our walk to watch it, to examine what's going on in our own living, to not become foolish, but to understand the will of the Lord, to actively pursue these things, and then not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled by the Holy Spirit. So I'll ask you, as we consider these things today, what part of this or parts, because I'll be honest, they're all, almost all of these hit me somehow, what parts of these speak to your situation? I don't know every situation, but I know that God has brought us to this passage for our good because we need it, and he desires us to be more like Jesus Christ. He desires to fill us with his Holy Spirit, by his Holy Spirit's power, that we would grow in the fullness of God. Are you seeking God to understand his will? Are you submitting yourself to good teaching? Are you thinking through the scriptures? Are you reading? Are you meditating? Are you understanding the will of the Lord or are you becoming foolish? Uh, have you allowed much wine to be your escape or maybe your joy or your coping mechanism? Is that something that you turn to? It can't be. He's told us that is a foolish way. Are you self-reliant? Are you a self-made person, a self-made Christian even? This is not the way that we get to true Christian maturity and bear fruit. We can't. He calls us to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Are these marks true of you? Do you sing from the heart to the Lord and to one another? That sounds like a silly one, but it's not. It is a means of grace for one another and praise to our God. Do you regularly give thanks to God for all that he has done for you in Christ? And then as we round it out here, are you willingly submitting to one another, to the authorities that God has given in your life, to the roles that you play, Brothers and sisters, this can feel like there's so much imperatives, like you've got to go do this, do this, do this, do this. Can I just remind you before we close in prayer, turn to Christ for your help. I was encouraged by a brother this week who said, Chris, we've got to stop looking back at the law and try harder at doing the law. But rather we need to repent and look to the cross. The cross declares that you and I could never do the law. It shows us that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, had to die because we couldn't do it. Not before our conversion, not after our conversion. And as we look back at the cross, we realize that it is God who works in us. This is the process of repentance and faith. Something just letting you know, I constantly pray for you. That God would grant you repentance and faith. He would give, grant me repentance and faith. 
continues to do so, he is glorified, not our working, our doing our best so that we would get glory. So I'll end with this. There is boundless grace for us and it is found in Christ alone. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your Holy Spirit working to fill your people. May we submit ourselves by faith to you. Grow us, dear God. We pray that you would do the work that we cannot do. We thank you for your every good gift that you have blessed us in Jesus Christ. I pray today that you would use your word powerfully for your glory. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.